Welcome to the Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. I'm one of your hosts, Brent Trimble, and my guest today is the president and CEO of BTM Global, Tom Shane. Tom, it's great to have you on the show. I'm excited about this episode because we're, we're going to split it and really talk about two important topics that I think are really relevant to our listeners. First, we're going to touch a bit on the ups, the downs, and the pitfalls of the RFI process and the role of procurement, particularly in the, the context of strategic enterprise platform and, and strategy services acquisition. And then we're going to dive into one of the important but sometimes overlooked topics in the process of enterprise software acquisition, which is which is change management and adoption. And as the heaven organization that delivers both system integration and development and strategic services, we think you've got a unique perspective on both of these topics that I think our listeners will really benefit from some real practical real world experience. But before we, you know, before we dive into those, tell us a bit about your background and a little bit about your firm, BTM Global. Thanks, Brad. It's great to talk to you today. A little bit about my background. I've been a uh, engineer, electrical engineer by training, but been doing software for 30 plus years, longer than that, but I don't know if there's an age requirement here, but the, uh, the, the first part of my career was focused on product development, and I did a lot of product development in a lot of different industries, military, government type things, as well as retail, uh, pharmaceutical type applications as well. Uh, but for the last 15 years, I've been working primarily only with services, and we're a service, BTM is a global, BTM Global is a service provider that works in the Oracle retail space, the manufacturing space and various services industries. And we implement products around Oracle retail products. We implement products with NetSuite, as well as MavenLink, which is a professional services tool. That's great. And give us a maybe just a, a dimensions of size and geography and the, the array of talent that you, that you deploy. Yeah. So a lot of our projects, we're BTM Global because we have a presence in Asia as well. So we execute projects in North America that are headquartered in North America that may have stores and operations all over the globe in Europe and South America, Asia. The company is organized with our headquarters in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, as well as a uh, headquarters in Asia in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. The Vietnam folks uh, handle our Asia implementations as well as support some of our North America ones as well. No, that's great. And so your base in Minnesota is entering the phase of fall spring right now as we're recording in mid-March. <laughs> exactly. So we're seeing some of the snow melt, but we still have quite a bit. <laughs> that's great. So with the array of platforms that your firm, BTM, you know, develops, integrates, and, and ultimately deploys for clients, you are oftentimes the recipient in that partner ecosystem of firms who are you know, transacting with the platforms that you described, you know, Oracle, NetSuite, Mavenlink, and undoubtedly you then start that transition or transaction many times in the procurement ecosystem. So most of our listeners, whether they're selling strategic services, maybe brand consulting, transformation, others are in your space, which are you know strategic platform implementation partners and uh, developers, everyone has some at least peripheral experience with that, right? And 
with the RFI, RFP procurement ecosystem comes, of course, lots of lots of ups and downs. I think every firm kind of adopts to that, has maybe some practices. Some might, you know, have a policy where they don't respond maybe to to blind RFIs, for instance, and those those types of things. But give us kind of your maybe we'll start with your overall view and pre-qualifiers and strategic imperatives when you begin and embark in that procurement RFI RFP chain. Yeah, so it's a great it's a great question. The uh, you know with RFIs it can vary in so many different things, and it's a request for information. So you kind of respond to those with the information to be able to provide a customer with some industry knowledge and that type of thing. Those vary in a lot of different ways, and they're they're they ask a lot of different things. I think the process that I'd like to really focus on is the RFP process, which are actually submitting a proposal. You know, the, the RFP process is a good one for clients to, you know, gather information about the industry and the solutions that they're talking about. They could be either products or services, but it's a good way for them to do that. And there is a process, you know, the general process is you, you have an RFP developed, you, you invite people to attend, to respond, you ask, you know, usually you set it up and say, hey, if you have any questions, you know, do this by this time, then, you know, give us a proposal, there's an evaluation and there's criteria and then there's a selection. So it's a good process for people to use. I think what we've discovered is, you know, as a, as a service provider, a lot of the services we provide are complex. They're not real simple cookie cutter type things. And when you get into that space, when you start asking, there's a lot of questions that have to happen. So usually the person issuing the RFP has a specific, you know, process they want to follow, maybe funnel all questions through a particular group or person. All of that is fine. I think where the value of what a person will get out of an RFP response really depends on how they run the process. And one of the things that we've run up against that's always been difficult for us is when they say, hey, if you have any questions, you know, submit the questions and we'll answer them. And one of the very first questions I always ask them is, are you going to share these questions with everyone? So if we're if we're at a half a dozen people that maybe are invited, you may or may not know that, but you know some group of people as a, as a responder, and they ask you, hey, are you going to share these questions with everyone? Nine nine times out of ten, almost all the time, they say yes, we're going to. And I've really struggled with that because it's certainly I'm not sure where that was defined as best practice <laughs> because I don't think it's best practice because in a complex situation where there's a lot of questions that need to be asked those questions will give away a little bit of what your secret sauce is on your solution. So you really don't want to share those with other competitors. You really want to keep that to you. And because they share them with everyone, what happens is I don't ask the questions. I make assumptions, which is a disservice to the person issuing the RFP because they're not really getting a really good, you know, a lot of good information back, not only about the industry or about, I mean, about the solution they're talking about, but also about the vendor themselves. You know, when you evaluate a vendor, you're evaluating, you know, them a lot on what questions they ask. That tells you something about them, right? It tells you, hey, these guys really know this stuff because they're asking some pretty good detailed questions. Or if the other ones are saying they're asking really, you know, light questions or something that's not very deep, that tells you a little bit about them. So it helps, it, it prevents you, one, from getting a good information back. And two, it, it prevents you from really truly evaluating whether that's a good service provider or not. What's interesting, you know, in a lot of cases, particularly if you're dealing with a, a large enterprise and, and potentially a public company, and there's certainly ethical guidelines around sourcing and, and not playing favoritism, and the, the procurement process helps check 
some compliance boxes. So, you know, in their mind, they've got to run folks through this. But it's always been interesting whether we have clients who are in, again, um, purely strategic, maybe creative consulting services, or in your case, you're doing strategic consulting as well as implementation, that a really large strategic decision for an enterprise, in essence, get gets reduced to, you know, some checkboxes and form field inputs, and then uh, it's uploaded into a Reba and then presumably scored. How often do you think, I'm curious, that a potential decision for a provider has been made or there's bias or there's maybe a pre-selection and that procurement is really just a compliance type of exercise? Yeah, and that's the risk you run on all of these, right, is especially in large companies that may have had a relationship with a provider in a previous project or whatever, and they're just going through to do the RFP process to check the box saying, I have to talk to at least three, four or five people and get their and get their things. You know, those are those are the things I think providers, service providers, what they do is through the question process can actually ask, you know, how many people are actually participating. You know, it's a risk you run on every single one. And really, it's a risk reward type thing. So if it's a smaller deal, so basically what I do, if I'm in a smaller space and I think the, the project is not really large enough for me to take that risk, then I won't participate. Or I'll participate for a little while, but then I'll I'll not give away the you know the store with it, right? Not give them complete, you know, all of the details that require it. So my level of response will change as well. It's a risk that every service provider has to take. You you have to do a little bit of homework ahead of time on why they're doing the RFP and why they're doing that. So for example, if you're working for a public entity and the public entity is doing it, that's usually the process they have to follow. And you still run the risks there as well, but that is a little bit more that's their standard procedure of doing it. If you're using, if you're going to a larger company or a maybe a, a mid tier two type thing, you know, mid sized company, then you know you have to kind of weigh that and do that. And usually, they're more willing to talk to you about that. The other thing too is that sometimes the interaction back and forth. So if you if you ask a question and the question response comes back and it's pretty light or not very detailed, that tells you something. If they're really saying, hey, wait a minute, what are you trying to ask here? I'm not sure I understand. Here's what you're, you know, what we think the answer is. And they want to have that discussion. It tells you something there too. So you're using discernment based on their responses to maybe gauge interest, gauge the sophistication, certainly potentially the requirements. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. What, you know, without giving away any of your special sauce of your firm, what kind of, maybe just in the abstract, what kind of pre-qualifier or evaluation criteria do you place on an RFI, RFP process? Potentially, maybe it's come through blind where you know there is no pre-existing relationship to gauge whether or not you're going to participate. Yeah. So some of the things we look at is usually the people issuing it have done this before, or they have a history. So you can go back into the history and see what they've done. If they've worked with the same company, for example, for the last 10 years, okay, fine. Then, then I may, I may or may not participate in that process. If the RFP, again, depends on the, what they're asking. So I look at the RFP and the depth of the information they're asking versus the size of the opportunity for us. So, you know, if they're asking for the same a huge level of detail, you know, for a hundred thousand dollar opportunity, that might be different than if it was a million or five million dollar opportunity. So again, size uh, of the opportunity will dictate really how much detail we can provide, and if depending on what they're asking. So the other thing too is that they ask the questions or the structure of the RFP says a lot. So if they're basically asking the right 
things. And again, how detailed. So if they're asking for specific resumes of people at the very early part, okay, that might, and not asking about methodology or an approach or your solution or your experience, you know, that'll tell you things. So when you evaluate an RFP, it's how complete and how well written it is. It's the size and and to value to what you're going to do, because you're going to invest, you know, hours on this and developing this RFP, if it's not really worth it based on the level of detail and the size of the opportunity, that's some of the criteria that you measure. A lot of times we'll do, you know, it depends, certain RFP processes are run differently if they, you know, require you to commit to a response or not. If they don't, then I'll get through the question process. And then based on that and that thing, then I'll decide again if I'm going to continue or not. And again, it comes down to the level of investment I'm willing to make versus the opportunity, level of detail, that type of thing. You know, to tie this off, what kinds of data or or analysis or even maybe postmortem do you do on these types of engagements? Do you collect any type of data around? Of course, you know, there's win-loss percentages. I think that all firms, regardless of the type of business that they're in, services business would would gauge. But any types of retrospection that gives you kind of some insight and helps maybe fine tune those qualifiers as you as you go through the the process or a, or an annual year is it more instinct or do you have some data sets that you refer to in addition to the criteria we've already talked about some of it's instinct right but the data that we look at is you know obviously we track win loss for how much we do we track how many hours we've invested versus the wins and and opportunity size the criteria it's more instinct i would say because and, and the reason I say that is because in our space, our proposals and our space that we work in is, is different. It's not the same. So let me lose an example. All retailers say that they're very different, right? And in reality, they're they're very much the same. However, you know there is a lot of complexity that you're dealing with. So for example, if you're if you're a retailer and you're you're issuing an RFP for replacement of all their store systems, all of their merchandising systems, I mean basically all a large part of their ERP footprint. Then I'll evaluate that and we'll have to tailor that to that response, right? If it's something that's really targeted, I only need this specific store system or this specific, you know, payment integration or whichever, if we stay in the retail space, then I'll measure that a little bit differently, right? That's less instinct and more predictability. In our case, there's a lot of factors. The services are, and usually the responses are complex. And so we do measure the obvious pieces, but, you know, we treat it more on an individual and it's a little bit more instinct depending on the, the situation we're dealing with. Gotcha. No, that, that that makes sense. So an RFP has been submitted. A solution has been acquired. Uh, you've you've been selected to to go through a strategic implementation. The software is implemented correctly. Requirements are met, probably exceeded. There's a strategic roadmap for rollout and the platforms go live. But in the but in the course of that is 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 the case in a lot of enterprise software, the end user adoption maybe lags. And there's some there's some challenges with that, right? This this isn't new to enterprise software. I think we've all been in our careers, maybe the recipient of a large rollout. Maybe that's been an ERP or it's been uh, a CRM or whatever the case might be, something that helps us transact our business. But in the past couple of years, just the surge and the acceleration of more digitization of processes, as well as modernization. You know, you described a retailer that's completely ripping out a legacy system and, and modernizing with with a new one. Adoption by end users ultimately, in many cases, 
dictates the the ultimate success and the ROI and the gains and the transformation of the business hinges on adoption. And I, I read a recent survey um, coming out of HBJ that executives of their own firms, I think only 30% of them rated their organization as highly effective at driving user adoption for employee-facing software. What are some macro trends you see in your career, particularly with BTM around this notion of of adoption and, and improvement or regression, I guess, in some in some cases. Everyone thinks of change management as either just training or something you do at the end of the project. And one of the things, that overarching goal of what you want to do, especially if you're doing a large transformation of your ERP systems and, and the way your company is operating is, everybody knows has done some of these before, you know, they get bumps in the road. There's going to be bumps in the road. And what happens is sometimes the, the internal client team gets a little frustrated, especially the person, you know, either at the store in a retail case or, you know, on the manufacturing floor, whichever. They're getting disgruntled and when the system doesn't work or there's a little bit of a bump. And what happens is a lot of them say, the system's terrible, right? And that's the last thing you want to have happen. You, you want them to believe in the system and believe in, in contributing to the success of the implementation. But that doesn't happen just organically. You have to you have to consciously make an effort to, to get everybody on page. So, for example, I did a, an implementation uh, with a client and what we did is because it was a big change for the company and how things were going to operate right at the beginning, right when we're still defining our, you know, the business process or requirements. And even before design, we, we took the show on the road and actually went out to different locations and presented them. Here's the plan. Here's what it's going to do. Here's why it's going to be good for you. And that kind of communication to the field was just extremely valuable because now they're all buying into that. They're all saying, okay, this is going to be great. So when you came to that bump in the road, they weren't saying the system is terrible. They're just saying, hey, wait a minute, this is what we have to do to fix it. So they're all kind of aligned in the same way. So communication is, you know, we say communication is important for everything, whether it's change management or relationships or whichever. But this is extremely important for adoption because if you wait too long and they're kind of guessing and the first time they see the system is a training exercise that happens in the last quarter of the implementation before you go live, that's too late, right? Because now if there's a bump in the road or there's a problem, they're like, well, this thing is terrible. And I, everybody who implements large ERP type systems has, has seen this. So the key things for adoption, one, are not only communication to the field up front, But also, you know, you got to get the executives on page so they're reinforcing it, the key leaders of the business so they're enforcing it, and then the people that are actually impacted. And like I said, I did roadshows before where, you know, right in the beginning, and I did three, four of them, and all through the, the process, not just at the beginning, we did this, and that was hugely beneficial because then people, when they get, they had difficulties or problems, which you're going to have, they were a far better mindset to solving them. And that, that was the key thing for adoption for me is that not only, you know, the basic things, yes, you've got governance, you've got your C-level guys all on page, but you've got to funnel that communication all the way through the business as far down as you can so that when things do come up or they're, or they're having challenges, certainly in the first month or whatever of an implementation and go live, that they're all on the same page. You don't have people sitting around going, oh, this, this sucks and I'm not going to do it. They're actually contributing and saying, hey, here's the problem we have. I did a little bit of research. Here's where we need to do. And you got now you got everybody in the, pointed in the right direction. So it sounds like a prevailing theme. One, one of my questions, follow-up questions was going to be, at what stage do you really start change management? And it sounds like, you know, successfully very, very early 
in that process, making them feel part of the requirements and that that persona level, how it's going to impact them in their daily work, as well as conveying the impact to the organization. It sounds like very early in the process. Absolutely. And, and, and it's not like you have to tell them every single detail of the project, just giving them an overview. Here's the plan. Here's the schedule. Here's how we're going to go about doing it. Here's when your guys are going to get trained on. And you can vary that level of detail as you go up and down the management chain. But to me, that almost right up front, as soon as you have a plan that you're working towards and a process by which you're going to implement, that's what I'd start communicating. So almost at the very beginning, and it doesn't take much. It's a small investment up front that can prevent a whole host of issues later on. And it will make your training easier. It's making your, you know, bumps in the road and managing that easier, your data management, because usually data is a problem on data-driven systems and you have to figure all that out. And so all of that becomes easier if they have the context up front and they've had months to be able to absorb it and they're getting constant updates, you know, and I stress the one thing I do want to stress on this, I do it in person. A lot of companies do this just by sending an email out or a newsletter, right? Well, many people don't do that. If you're on a manufacturing floor, you're certainly not checking a newsletter about a new program you're worried about today and today's quota. If you're in a store, for example, it's the same thing. You're worried about today, not really about tomorrow. But doing it in person, spending that hour of time you know, before a store opens or at corporate headquarters or whichever – is really worth it. Now they see a person, they can talk to you, they can ask questions, they feel kind of connected to the project. Even though you're really not giving them too much to do, you're just connecting them, right? So I think that in person, like I said, I did the road show where I went on the show, went around to various regions within the, the country to do this for a client, and it was hugely beneficial. Now, that sounds great. And it's interesting, there's a growing, in fact, I think Forrester and Gardner now index these platforms digital adoption platforms that take training and distill it in more persona-led walkthroughs technologically, of course, you know, they deliver these through web interfaces and so forth, sometimes within the platform. What's your, you know, have you been exposed to some of these? It sounds like it's it's taking, of course, you know, in-person training sessions are always extremely valuable. And the new reality, of course, you know, we're doing a lot of things remotely, but it seems like classroom or in-context training is coming back. But have you had any um, experience or seen end clients who, once you're through with the implementation and you've taken them through the journey of wherever you've been contractually or from an engagement perspective, engage in change management. You know, new employees join firms all the time. There's new tranches of users who are going to come into your platform. Have you had any exposure to the to the DAPs and any good, bad, or indifferent types of types of feedback? Yeah. So there's a couple of things and, and there are a couple of things with this that are good. And whether you do this in person or you do it on, over the wire, the key thing for a training piece is, again, if you've, if you've communicated this through the process, the people already know a lot of context before they come in, which is good. The training needs to be scheduled in a day in the life, right? It needs to be a day in the life thing. There's too much training I see now that says, okay, here's how you do it. Open this screen, enter this. And it's very methodical as far as this is what screen you use is what button you push or whatever. And a lot of it is not put yourself in the day in the life, right? So if you're a, if you're a merchandiser at a retailer, you want to, uh, you know, learn and understand what their day in the life is like. 
you know, how do I get a new item? How do I deal with whatever? There's, and it covers not only merchandisers, but finance people and store management. There's all kinds of things, but you got to do that day in the life. So what I think what a lot of people do is they take, here's how the system works. Here's how the screens are organized. Here's how you navigate and all that kind of stuff, which is okay, but it's far more beneficial to put yourself in the day in the life. Does that require a little bit more effort for a person developing the training? Absolutely. But that's the most benefit for the client. You know, now I can say, hey, if you're a if you're a store manager, this is the kind of things you have to do every day. Here's how you do them in the system and do that. And I think, you know, defining those up front, getting those getting that, you know, those day in the life scenarios, you know, again, are going to fall out naturally through the change management process because you've been talking to them since the beginning. Right. So when you go and you do these little things, you're going to get those things almost occurring naturally. You know, how is this really going to impact me? How do I do X, Y, Z process in this new system? And that gives you those scenarios. So when you come down to the training at the end, not only do they have context, they have preparation, but now they think you're one of them and you're teaching them how to do their job in the new system. So that's what I've really seen that that people don't do well. And the ones that success are the ones that do it that way as a day in the life. It's a little bit more involved than everything. But to be quite honest, if you don't do it that way, the, the issues that you have for the first six months of your after go live are a hell of a lot harder. Now you've got a bunch of people, one, who are thinking the system isn't working right and it's terrible. And then they, then it says, I don't know how to use it. How do I do my job? I can't do my job. You can imagine all of the lack of adoption you're going to have there and the complaints. So that kind of investment, if you spread it out over the time, is just worth its weight in gold. In your experience, how willing have your clients, again, speaking broadly and in, in the abstraction, how willing have they been to invest in that as part of an implementation, right? You've got your Again, going back to procurement, driving potentially to a price and using potentially price as the primary attribute of weighing two solutions against each other. What's been the willingness of clients to to really invest in that? Change management early in the process involving end users and everything from requirements gathering to reviewing current state versus future state, and then ultimately that rollout. Is that maybe a contributing factor you see when you're evaluating an engagement and gauging the sophistication of the end client? Those that are willing to invest per potentially, you know, are, are much more serious about adoption versus those who say, you know, this is just kind of commoditized. And of course, there'll be some training modules and videos rolled out and, and that's the end of it. That's exactly the challenge that most every service provider has, right? Is, you know, at the beginning, the client's going to be negotiating to try to get it down from a price, from a schedule perspective. And yet when you try to tell them, hey, this is going to be beneficial for me, for you for a longer term, and this is going to make it better. Most of the people that I service aren't, they do these implementations once every 15 to 20 years, right? So they don't have the knowledge and understanding. So the key piece of that is that you have to have that conversation and tell them, here's why. It's difficult. If it was easy, a lot of service providers wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's why we're here. And it is difficult to do because you're, it's, it's counterintuitive. You're telling them, here's the things you need to invest in to make this a success. At the same time, it's going to cost more money. And now I'm competing with everybody else who's shortcutting it. You also have the other players too. And I've run into this a number of times, which they'll, they'll underbid it just to get it, right? Especially if it's a larger bid and then they nickel and dime um, you know, the change management process throughout this. And if it's, it costs a lot more than if we had convinced the client up front that, you know, you get what you pay for. That's always a hard thing to do. And if you're dealing with procurement people at larger firms, 
larger companies, they don't understand that either, really. That's not, they're not responsible for the implementation. They're just responsible for getting the, you know, the, the best value of what they're getting. And they don't have a good way to measure value. So it's hard. It is hard. There's no, no question about it. Anybody who's responded to an RFP knows that they're competing on price. And if they're only looking at price, then it's, it's a tough sell. And my experience has been very good about explaining to them you know, either in a written document or a lot of times you'll have an opportunity to present your solution, right, during an RFP process to say, here's why this is valuable. And if they understand that and you can get across to that, that's actually been very successful for us. It's not just skip to the last page, look at the price, and that's it, right? Because there's too many other things, whether it's change management or scope or integration or data or whatever, that you got to compare apples to apples. And not every client that issues an RFP has a good process by that, right? So you have to understand that and you have to understand how well they're running it and then and then position everything accordingly not just leave something out just to get you a better price and then we'll deal with it down the road no it's a great it's a great i think concluding thought that you know ultimately that investment in enterprise software can be jeopardized by poor adoption and you ultimately do get what you pay for in an implementation so you know some if i had to summarize some of your your insights here it's really placing a high degree of importance on end user adoption, including them early in the process. Conversely, conveying that to an organization that only goes through these transformational changes every you know decade or so, but spending the time to convince them of the value is ultimately invaluable and can help drive ultimately the success of their adoption. And ultimately, the reason most firms invest in sophisticated enterprise software and automation is to improve productivity, user experience, and and ultimately value and profit. So, Right. And, you know, to tie it all the way back to the beginning, when we talked about questions, you know, these are questions that I would ask in an RFP. You know, what is your experience? What is you, what change management have you done before? What other projects have you been successful on or not successful to, to try to get that understanding? And that should be another value for the person that's conducting the RFP to say, hey, wait a minute, this guy's asking some pretty good questions. You know, that's, that's, we should think about that, right? We shouldn't just think about price, think about these guys really know what they're doing and we should go down that path. That's excellent. Well, this has been a really, I think, beneficial conversation with some, some great practical knowledge. And again, just to close out, Tom Shane, president of, and CEO of BTM Global, a sophisticated, strategic implementation and platform implementer of Oracle NetSuite and Mavenlink products with a true global presence talking to us about the beginning of the chain, the RFI, the RFP process, all the way to end user adoption and how the two really connect. So Tom, again, thanks so much for joining. I think this will be a great a great episode with lots of, lots of nuggets and lots of uh, great value based on your experience. So we appreciate your time today. Thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know by giving the show a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a comment. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do so anywhere you get your podcast on any podcast app. And to learn more about the transformative power of Mavenlink, go to mavenlink.com. Thank you for listening.